Last week we began talking about how Jesus spoke about the secrets of the kingdom or the mysterious sayings of the kingdom. And we looked at a variety of statements of Jesus that showed him teaching about the kingdom in four kinds of ways. When he initially began to preach, Jesus spoke of the kingdom as being where? Near. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. But, some of you are right, Jesus also spoke of the kingdom as being here, now present. Luke 11.20, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is here. In Jesus' ministry was the demonstration that the kingdom of God was now here. It is now present. But, He also spoke of the kingdom as being way off in the future sometime at the end of history. And then finally, he also spoke of the kingdom as being delayed. Well, it's coming, but not yet. In fact, it's going to be a while. So there's all these four elements. And so we asked the question, so what exactly is the nature of God's kingdom? Is it here? Is it near? Is it delayed? Or is it in the distant future? And the correct answer is yes, all the above, A, B, C, and D. And it's only by grasping this mystery that we'll be able to understand the dynamics of the kingdom, to live within it, to work with it, and partner with God. So this morning I want to talk about this morning. There it is, that adjustment we're still making. This afternoon, I want to talk about the implications of this mystery of the kingdom, particularly as it relates to us and what I'm calling the mystery of the Christian life. But before we head there, let's pray. Father, I think it's kind of cool that you're mysterious. I think if everything were just kind of so-so, we'd all be sort of so-so. But I think the reality is is that you want to keep us on the edge of our seats. You don't want us to live complacent lives. In fact, I believe with all my heart that you want us to live absolutely dynamic, incredible, fulfilling, powerful lives. But there's a mystery to that. And the more we can grasp and understand it, the more we can partner with you and welcome that which is to come, the future into the present now. Help us understand this better as a result of today. Father, for those who have come who are really needing an understanding of how this all works, that, Lord, you would just take us into a further clarity of understanding the mystery of your kingdom and the mystery of our Christian lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Having been a pastor and a Christian leader for almost 30 years now, I know that Christians are often very discouraged about themselves. Um, In fact, I get discouraged about myself at times. And sometimes we think, you know, God is wonderful, everybody else is wonderful, but as for me, woe is me. I'm a wreck, my life is a wreck. And I'm supposed to be a Christian. My hope and my prayer is that this afternoon that you and I both will be encouraged 
and perhaps even transformed in our thinking and our understanding about our personal Christian experience. As is the kingdom, so are the sons and the daughters of the kingdom. Just as the kingdom is mysterious in that it is here and near and delayed and future, so our Christian life is mysterious in that while we are still living in this present age, before this present age has terminated, for us, the age to come has already begun. For us, eternal life, which in the actual Greek means life of the ages or life of the future age, has already begun. As the kingdom of God is an already not yet phenomenon, so we as Christians, those born into the kingdom, are already not yet people. Which means that we are here, almost here, delayed in future people. Which means that we're not only mysterious, we're really rather schizophrenic. So look at your neighbor next to you and say, you're schizo. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Well, we are. We're living already in the age to come. And yet, in another way, we're just a normal now kind of person. If you were to look at the language in the New Testament about salvation you will find that it's used in three different tenses. It will speak of us being saved. We are saved. Present reality. It will speak of we are being saved. It's kind of something that's ongoing. It's, it's something that is, is still at work. And then we will be saved. Salvation is yet to come. The Apostle Paul, in a very similar kind of way, speaks of justification, sanctification, and glorification. They're parallel to those same three. Justification, meaning that we have been justified. We have been made whole and complete and saved. We have been justified. Our sins have been forgiven. But then there is sanctification, which is this ongoing process of development in us, of seeing these things that are still in us, that are of earthly, being put aside. And yet there is a glorification that is yet to come. All of this simply reflecting the fact that the kingdom is here, near, delayed, and future. Here at the Vineyard, we talk about being process sensitive, meaning that all of us are in a process of becoming. And the goal is not simply to get saved. It's not simply to become a disciple. It's not simply to become a disciple maker. It is to become like Jesus, to be, as I taught last year over quite a few weeks, teleos, complete, whole, just like God is complete and whole. And too often, I think most of us as Christians have a, a false expectation of the Christian life. We've heard people say, come to Jesus and he'll change your life. And it's true. But we miss the fine print that said, then after that, there'll be a whole lot of conflict that's going to happen in your life. In some Christian traditions, there's a tendency for people to present being victorious all the time. Like nothing ever goes wrong and they never have any problems. Here in the vineyard, as a result, I believe, of our value for process as well as genuineness, people often look a whole lot more buckled and bent than that. Even bruised and beat up like they've come out of a war zone. 
which I think is probably more realistic of where all of, the, all of us live. We are not, having arrived, got it all together, always victorious Christians. Yet, in Christ, we have arrived. We do have it all together, and we are always victorious. Kind of schizophrenic, isn't it? I want to spend just a few minutes looking at the Bible, particularly Paul, where he is contextualizing this kingdom message of Jesus. And I want to look at a couple of already texts where he is basically saying, we've got it. It's already happened. Then I want to look at a couple of not yet texts where he says, well, no, not really. (laughs) You haven't got it yet. So that's what we're going to do. Second Corinthians 517. I don't have PowerPoint um, for a, a number of reasons, but I don't. So there you go. And I don't have notes either. So there you go. I was busy this week, but uh, in a different way. It's all good. It's all good. Second Corinthians 517. I'll read it for you. If you've got a Bible, you can look it up. If anyone is in Christ. Anyone out there in Christ? Anybody? OK, got one or two hands there. All right. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. This is an already text. If you've been born again, if you've given your life to Jesus, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The patterns are gone. And the new has absolutely come. It is an awesome truth. It is also eschatological language. Paul is saying in Christ... We have been taken out of this present age and we are already living in the age to come. Who you once were is gone and you're completely new. Y'all are experiencing that, right? Everybody, every every day. This is an already passage. It is true. It is already true. Here's another one. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy... Out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right now, at this very moment, you are now already seated with Christ in heaven. Look around you. Do you see the angels? Do you see the throne of God? Do you see Christ standing at God's right hand with a crown on his head and a wound in his side? Can you see it? I did the other night. This week I had the privilege um, to sing with the San Antonio Symphony Master Singers. And I sang at the Majestic Uh, in the Messiah performance that was performed on Friday and Saturday night. And I had a number of encounters with uh, God um, during the time. I cried every single night uh, when we sang the Hallelujah Chorus. At some point in it, lost a few measures, just choked up, couldn't sing. But on Friday night, you know, we had completed and there was a standing ovation for the symphony and us. And um, the conductor and the soloists went out and then they came back in. You know, everybody's applauding and they went back out and they came back in. Everybody's applauding. They went back out three times. 
And I'm watching this, of course, you know, usually we watch that from the audience side. Well, I'm behind, you know, I'm way at the back of the back wall of the Majestic, sitting in the, uh, standing on this bleacher that moved when we moved. Very exciting. Um, and um, I had this encounter where I envisioned, imagined heaven someday. And we were being introduced as we entered the throne room. And there was applause and cheering and yelling of bravos for each of us. This glimpse of what it's going to be like in heaven. We already are standing there. Listen to what the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John says in the book of Revelation. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a great white throne in heaven, him who was seated on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. Anybody got their calculator? That's a couple, I think. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I downloaded that from a website, but I didn't get a cut on no CD, so you could hear it. Anyway, it's cool. It's the conclusion of the Messiah performance. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne. And in the front of the lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, and they cried out, Hallelujah. Amen. And we are in that crowd. Yes, someday, when that exact moment will take place in some kind of historical setting for us, but it's already happening, and we're already seated there beholding the fullness of Christ and of heaven. We're all ready. But we're not yet. 2 Corinthians 5, 2-5 Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And boy, do I understand that one. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Paul is speaking here about 
waiting for that future resurrected body. And he says that while we are waiting, we groan and are burdened. We are not yet people. Colossians 3.5 So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual sin, impurity, lust, and shameful desires. Don't be greedy for the good things of this life, for that is idolatry. Here Paul is giving instructions to these already Christians that they still need to deal with the stuff that's inside them because they're not yet people. Now, we might think that Paul wrote these already verses when he was in a good mood, you know, kind of on a good day, and that maybe he wrote the bad ones when he was in kind of a bad mood on a bad day. But I want to share with you a passage where the not yet is identified alongside the already. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 through 10. In everything, we try to show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, been put in jail, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights and gone without food. We have proved ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, our sincere love and the power of of the Holy Spirit. We have faithfully preached the truth. God's power has been working in us and through us. We have righteousness as our weapon, both to attack and to defend ourselves. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us imposters. We are well known, but we are treated as unknown. We live close to death, but here we are still alive. We have been beaten within an inch of our lives. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. Paul starts off here by describing the pain of being in Christian ministry and the Christian life. Great endurance, troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Anybody want to sign up? Sometimes I think we've thought that if we come to Jesus, we're going to be free from suffering. You ever heard that one? But Paul is actually saying, no, come to Jesus, serve him, and you're going to get torn to shreds. But then Paul seems to have a mood swing to the opposite direction. And he speaks of purity, understanding, patience, kindness in the Holy Spirit, sincere love, truthful speech, the power of God, weapons of righteousness. We might think of this as kind of being loaded with the fruit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Then to make sure that we get his point that these are both part of the daily Christian experience. He goes phrase by phrase, sort of explaining this contradictory kind of experience in the Christian life. Through glory and dishonor. Kind of opposite experiences. Bad report and good report. 
Genuine, yet regarded as imposters. Known, yet unknown. Dying, and yet living. Beaten, well, but not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How do you put those two together? Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. I might paraphrase Paul this way. Christians are the happiest depressed people on earth. Christians are victorious losers. And failing victors. That's my experience. How about yours? You come to church, go to your community group, you experience the presence and power of God. You're built up by the worship or the teaching. You're filled with zeal to serve and live for God. You're driving home and you think, I'm so glad I'm a Christian. God's awesome. And your car breaks down. Or you get in an accident. I remember the day I saw Patty Anderson five minutes after church on a Sunday morning having been in a car accident right outside of church. Or you go shopping. You know, you buy an expensive item and then you get home and you find out you've forgotten left it in the shopping cart. Love when that happens. You lose your keys or your wallet or your glasses. You get home and the washing machine is broken. It's flooded your house and you start to swear. You get in a fight with your spouse or one of your kids. You're angry. You start thinking things a Christian shouldn't think. You're feeling things that a Christian shouldn't feel. And you're saying things that a Christian shouldn't say. And if it gets bad enough, you think, am I even saved? Then you think, it was just a few hours ago. I was, I was almost in heaven. And then you think, boy, I need counseling. And you probably do. But more than that, what we need is to understand that we have been born into the kingdom of God and that is what it is like to be in the kingdom. One last one here, a couple more. Another one is 1 John 1.10. The Apostle Paul says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Yeah, we like that one. That one's a good one. We like that one means that even though the cross has deeply affected our lives, we have been justified by faith in Christ, and yet we still have sin in our lives. But if across the page, at least in my Bible, on the other side of the page in 1 John 3, 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or even knows him. We don't like that one. Which could seem to say, if you keep on sinning, you're probably not even a Christian. But really what's going on here is that we're already not yet people. Probably one of the most clear passages is found in a section of Romans, chapters 6 through 8. A profound, already not yet, section of material. And how to deal with it even. And Paul says in Romans 7, 21 through 25, It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in this delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. 
I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Message translation. The way that we can understand this and the rest of Romans 6 to 8, as well as many of the challenging passages in the New Testament, is to understand them in the context of the kingdom of God, the already and the not yet. And that is the context that every Christian lives in. The framework of the already and the not yet It is this framework that we have been born into. There's never been a Christian who hasn't lived in this tension and there never will be a Christian that won't live in this tension. It is the reality of living in the kingdom of God. We are at war and the war is in us. In this present age, we will experience this duality and tension within us and we ought not, therefore, to despair. As I said at the beginning, there are many Christians who tend to really, really get down on themselves. They look around them and everyone else seems to be doing fine. And they think, you know, I must be the only messed up kid that God has on planet Earth. All these other people are living in a wonderful world of victory and blessing. But as for me, for some reason, the Christian life hasn't really worked yet. People, as a result, can feel very ashamed of themselves. Some go into significant self-deprecation. They think when God looks at all of his other children, he's filled with pleasure. But when he looks at them, he almost falls off his throne in despair. And God himself even loses his faith when he looks at their Christian life and how they're doing. Let me tell you the truth. God is not at all phased when he looks at you or me. And even the mixed up schizophrenia that we live in. Because he created this context. Somehow, and for some reason, in his mysterious ways, he decided that there would be this overlap of the ages and that we would be born into it. And in fact, it would happen within us. And so of all the people who could understand our daily struggles and the conflict that is happening within us, friends, God does. God loves you as you are in all of your triumph and all of your defeat, all of your joy and all of your depression, all at the same time. And he also knows that he will triumph in you. And there is no doubt of the final outcome. Listen to these words by the Apostle Paul from Philippians 1, verses 3 through 6. I thank my God every time I remember you constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you. Because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to teleos, completion, by the day of Christ. And that should be a wonderful comfort to us that we need to remember because Satan wants to take you out. There are Christians who will 
do a sin where they think I have now finally crossed the boundary. I've gone where no Christian can ever go and there's no way back. And you'll find these people sitting in churches, their bodies in the meeting, but they're not there. They have disqualified themselves. Let me ask you, have you thought that you have committed the unpardonable sin? And let me tell you what Satan doesn't tell you. If you worry that you've done it, you couldn't have done it. Yeah, we're all mixed up. And there are things that we do that we shouldn't. We may fail God many times, but there are also the victories. Now, I'm not advocating a laissez-faire approach to the Christian life. Read Romans 6. Neither does Paul. As a matter of fact, there are things that we can do and ought to do to help us experience more of the already and less of the not yet. We can plug into God's power or what has classically been described as the means of grace. Things like Bible study, prayer, worship, witnessing, serving the poor, giving away food to the poor, community life, meditation, fasting. All of those are things and ways that we sort of kind of stand under the shower of God's incoming kingdom and we're washed by it again and again. You know, there's the, 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 the little saying, uh, seven days without God's word makes one week. W-E-A-K. Do we really think that we can experience the fullness of the already and not spend time in His Word? Maybe you've read the book once and you put it up on your shelf. But I think this one requires more reading than that. I know each time I read it, I find something new. Do we really think we can make it through a week without prayer? Without meeting with God? We're going to experience the here and now when we live that way. But if we will implement these things as a part of the life that Christ did, read His life. He did these things. All of those are ways that we experience the kingdom. Now another one is getting ministry where we allow people to pray for us and we get just a little bit more of the powers of the coming age. I'm am, I am, I'm almost always startled when we give invitations for people to receive prayer. And I know that some of you are experiencing challenges in your life, whether they be physical or relational or whatever, like we talk about. And yet you make the decision to stand up and go out the door. It's kind of like you're starving to death and I've, I've off, I have this smorgasbord up here and I'm saying, anybody want to come have dinner with me? And we're going away hungry and we don't need to. The kingdom of God is present. He's, he's put it into us to serve His banquet to one another. There's things that can't happen alone that happen in the body of Christ.
He never intended us to be individual Christians. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. And everybody else, most of them had their sidekicks. Spider-Man didn't have anybody, I guess. He had his girlfriend. It is wonderful fun to be a Christian. But it's also terribly painful. And usually both at the same time. The good news is that it is going to get better and better. The bad news is that it's also going to get harder and harder at the same time. Let me make one final point that I've done. As a result of understanding this dynamic, I would beg of you, do not postpone your availability to serve God until you're at some point of perfection or having arrived. Because if you do, you'll wait till you're a very, very old person about to fall into the grave and you won't have the physical ability to do it then. Another way of putting this is you will never be more ready to be used by God than you are today. Have you ever noticed how often God uses baby Christians? The day after they're converted, they seem to be wild, raving, lunatic evangelists. One reason, because they still have non-Christian friends. And then we bring them into the church and we calm them down and tell them not to do that anymore and then they get like us and we all sit around never mind no I'm being a little pessimistic and negative my wife over there but they don't know any better you just told them that all that God has ever wanted for them is available they believed you they're going to go do it and walk in it and it happens we experience a few failures along the way. We trip and fall on our face and pray for one person. They don't get well and we go, well, I guess it doesn't work. I'll go back to reading my newspaper. (coughs) We're never going to be more ready to serve Christ than we are today. You see, the enemy loves to argue with us until we self-disqualify ourselves. You were very, very aware of the tension within us. It's very easy to go and simply say, well, God can't use me. But I say, do not postpone serving God. The truth is, if you'll get in the front lines and give yourself away to others as mixed up as you are with all the stuff that's still in your life, you'll be far more likely to experience transformation there than if you sit on the sidelines disqualifying yourself. So I say rush to the service of God, just as you are. And when you have your next terrible failure, pick yourself up or put your hand up and let somebody else pick you up. Confess your sin. Ask God to forgive you and rush back into serving Him again. Now my hope is is that some of you here are experiencing a sense of relief. That someone has explained you to you. That you're okay. That you're going to make it. That God doesn't hate you. And that you don't have to hate yourself. And that there's actually hope for you. But sometimes, as I've said, as Christians, we go 
beyond some sort of boundary where we think that we shouldn't have gone. And we're living in fear that we'll never get back to God. Some of us are living in profound shame, and most of this in secret. It's our inner conversation with ourselves where we speak very negatively to ourselves most of the time. And I want you to know that if that's where you are, God has great compassion for you. And his mercy is available to you tonight. Some of you have gotten so tired in this fight that inwardly you're almost ready to walk away. You're saying, I don't know whether I can still even be a Christian at all. And what I would advocate that we need to do is first of all, simply to say, God, I'm sorry that I've almost given up on you and what you're doing in my life. I'm sorry that I've allowed myself to be ruled by my self-disappointment. God, I think I had the wrong expectation. And Lord, I give you my life back again. I trust you that you know what you're doing and that you're ultimately going to win. God, I believe with all my heart, wants to minister his gentleness and mercy and power to you today. And in a minute, we're going to pray and we're going to invite God's kingdom to come. We're going to invite the powers of the coming age, all that good stuff that we read in the Bible about freedom from pain and sickness and disease and happiness and joy and lots of food. We're going to invite that to come today, right now. To allow Jesus to accomplish his work in us. And perhaps to give us a new sense or a sense of a new dawn of our life and new hope. So let's do that. Father, you're not at all surprised at the challenge that we face. The war that's going on within us. That Paul himself so clearly articulated, I I really want to serve and love God. I really don't want to sin. But there's a war. And somehow something else takes hold and I fail again. Father, I welcome your kingdom now to come and minister to those here who feel so much a failure. Who feel like they take one step forward and end up 20 back. And Lord, for those that are here who just are so worn out that they're just ready to give up and throw in the towel. Come. Come, Holy Spirit. Save them again. Bring the power of your future age to bear upon their heart and mind and body and soul and spirit and emotions right now.
you um, this afternoon would like to experience more of the life to come and less of the here and now, I'd like to welcome you to come up to the front. We've said that the Christian life is full of pain. That just when we think we're ready to win, we find we just lost again. But the ultimate victory has already been won. It's already been accomplished. I believe the Lord has given me the scripture. It's uh, from Psalm 24, verse 8. Um, I believe some there are some people here this morning even that have a similar question. Is Who is the king of glory? It's the question that it's posed. And some of you may be asking, you know, who is God? Who is Jesus? And, and here's the answer. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, invincible in battle. You know, we can read the book and we can see that we win. We win the, ultimately, we win the war. But even within that, we win all the skirmishes. We win all the battles. Everything that looks like it was a loss, God chose Another means to glorify Himself. And, and I am standing here as living proof that there is the power that's needed. There is the glory that's needed. There is the grace and the mercy that's needed for anyone here to turn what you feel is a loss into a win. It's just a matter of if it's a paradigm shift, it's a change in perspective. Because all that happened is God chose another way, to, a better way, the way to glorify Himself greater. He could have done what you asked Him to do, but He would have received less glory than ultimately what He did and has done and will do. So I just encourage you, if that's where you are, and you need that paradigm shift, the Lord is mighty and powerful, and He is here to help you in that and gain that victory. Reminded of another passage of Paul as well where he speaks of wanting to know Christ. And I suspect that many of you standing here and even those of you sitting have have said, I want to know God more. And Paul says in Philippians 3 what the means to that is. That I may know Christ And the power of his resurrection becoming like him in his death.
sharing in His sufferings. And so, Father, we welcome You now to know Christ, to welcome You to help us to know Christ more fully than we ever have. Lord, for these here that are discouraged, that are worn out, that are just ready to quit. Lord, let them know You. And through this sharing in Your sufferings, might they experience the fullness of the power of resurrection. The promise, yes, of a future resurrection, but even now, that I might know His resurrection now, Paul says. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers and sisters, not that I have obtained this, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, give us a vision of heaven. Give us a vision, as you gave to me the other night, of that great crowd of witnesses cheering as we cross the stage. As you call our name from the book of life, and you look at us in the eyes and you say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, it doesn't look like all goodness and it doesn't look like all faithfulness down here. But you are at work. Working a work that is eternal and not just momentary. Lord, thank you that you have not taken away some of the things that have pressed us. Because if you did, we would be left like a patient on the surgery table with cancer still inside and an open wound. When we have cried, stop, stop, you have lovingly kept on. When we thought we could live no more, you breathed life into us again. Do it again, Lord, now for these. Do it again. Raise up your church and your people out of the gutters that we have placed ourselves in, the gutters of disappointment and self-disqualification, fear, shame, I command those things to go now. And for your minds and your hearts to be cleansed and to be filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He who has been given to, to you as a guarantee of what is to come. That means you've already got it. It's here. He is here. Come, Holy Spirit. Come. Lord, break the grip of sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race set before us, Lord. And Father, we welcome you to take us out as a mighty army, limping, legless, eyeless, 
and send us out to gather the wounded of this world, the broken, the hurting, the lost, and bring them into your banquet hall and into your throne room. Lord, in this season of Christmas, what what an opportunity there is. Almost every time we're in a store or wherever, to reflect on Christ and to lead others to Him. Let us use this time for Your glory and let us be reminded of the great gift that You gave in Your Son. In Jesus' name. Now I would welcome you all that are up here to just stay for a few minutes as a few of us want to pray with you and for you. The rest of you, you're welcome to be dismissed or you can come help pray or you can come get prayer still. Those are all options. Um, but we're at, uh, we're at our time. And so if you're able to go get your kids and release our uh, workers back there and thank them for what they're doing, that would be great. But if you would like prayer or if you'd like to help pray, we would love to have your support and love to have you come up. God bless you all. Have a great week.